Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. I'm one of your regular hosts, Greg Bosco, and with me as always is the very highly effective co-captain, Derek. Say hi, buddy. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. Good to see you, Greg. Yeah, and uh, just like normal, everybody, we're going to be starting off with some some Trek news, uh, discuss the Ready Room, discuss the Jonathan Frakes interview before we dive into the uh, the second episode of Discovery, New Eden. Uh, a name that hides nothing of the plot, obviously. <laughs> you know, anything of Earth mysticism and lore, of course. Yeah, this one was a little on the nose, but that was on purpose. They weren't really trying to hide the story, so. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously they, they have plans. And again, it's another throwback to like an old school original series episode. Yes, very much so. But Derek, you are, you're a little bit more caught up on the news than I am. I was neglecting my duties due to a, uh, a challenging toddler. So no worries. Why don't you take the lead for a minute? Sure. So uh, first, I wanted to talk about the Ready Room. So um, for those of you out in the podcast world, that might mean a podcast series that you're familiar with from um, a wonderful network called Trek FM that's been going for several years. I'm not quite sure how long, but that's not... The version that I'm about to talk about. This is the replacement for After Trek. Uh, so for those who followed Star Trek Discovery in its first season may remember that there was a after show like The Talking Dead that aired on CBS All Access basically directly after the episodes of Discovery. Uh, it was kind of an in- interview format show. There was a small audience um, a very elaborate set, you know, lots of Star Trekky stuff. They had the really expensive model, ship models out there. They'd bring, you know, crew and cast members on and things like that to, to talk about the show. And in the off season, it was announced that they were going to go a different direction. And after Trek, as we knew it, was not going to continue for season two. That was all we knew until very recently. Well, the replacement show... Uh, as we mentioned uh, briefly last week or the week before, is a Facebook live show, um, which means it actually airs on the Star Trek Discovery Facebook page. It's uh, a video that they post directly to the page. Uh, so if you, you miss it, you have to kind of scroll a bit, which is honestly, I think, my only gripe about the first episode is that I had to find it. Um, and it's short. It was only uh, the first episode was 13 minutes, 58 seconds. It is uh, it is an interview format show, but done m- much less formal and much less um, put this delicately. It didn't feel fake um, or staged. So it's hosted by Naomi Kyle, who used to uh, be a host over at IGN. She hosted the Daily Fix. 
I don't really know much about her other than really watching this episode. And um, she had on two guests, Alex, Alex Kurtzman, who most Star Trek people probably recognize the name. He was very involved in the Kelvin movies and he is one of the co-creators and now showrunner of Discovery. And then uh, Heather Caden, who is one of the executive producers of Discovery. They were the two guests. And they, the three of them sat in chairs. They were on a green screen with a pretty star, star field type background. And they just talked for 14 minutes. Uh, she interviewed them. She asked good, thoughtful questions, in my opinion. She asked a couple of questions that they didn't really want to answer, which uh, at least made it appear that this was not heavily prepared ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a good point because that was one of the complaints of After Trek was the show felt very kind of like almost canned, like everything yeah. was so planned and so over the top and, you know, check out this clip. Woo! And you're like, all right, this is whatever. Just move on. Just right. Star Trek. And like Naomi clearly seems to be a fan. She knows exactly what she's talking about. You know, she's into it. She seems engaged. Right. So this is, you know, she's prepared. It's more of like, I don't think Alex and Heather just like had a list of questions beforehand that were approved or anything. I think that she just respected who they were and vice versa. And they had a conversation and, you know, there were a couple of questions that they didn't really give much of an answer to, like you would see in a normal interview, which I can appreciate. Um, they did drop some cool information. Uh, so uh, first off, Jonathan Frakes, who directed New Eden, he also directed a couple episodes last season, will direct at least one more this season. Um, she, uh, Heather Caden confirmed that he's directing two. And the way that the exchange went, I'm not sure if she meant two total this season or two more this season. I'm not entirely sure which, which she meant by that. But So that's cool. We'll at least see Jonathan Frakes back in the director's chair one more time this season. Yeah, it's always, it's always good to have old Trek alum involved in directing episodes because it, it just shows that they still care and they still want to see the franchise do well. Well, Frakes is just so beloved in the fandom, you know, for even not just from us as, as the Trekkie fans, but also as the cast members and crew members. Uh, there's a bunch of, of stuff about him directing this episode. People just love him. He's not only, of course, does he know the franchise and know the material, but he's also a very accomplished and solid director. Um, there was a big campaign when it was announced that JJ Abrams was not directing the third Kelvin film and they had not picked Justin Lin yet. Um, they were still looking. There was a big campaign to have Jonathan Frakes return since he directed both first contact and insurrection. Well, and you know, there's a lot of people that out there that believe that he's directed the second or third best Star Trek film in first contact. You know, my second favorite is, you know, Voyage Home, of course, but then number three is First Contact. And yeah. he's got talent. I mean, Insurrection, eh, <laughs> you know, Purple purple Space Bazooka and, you know, the the, the best of Target's summer clothing. Um, yeah, I mean, whatever. they definitely had a, they, they definitely seem to be stretching the budget on that one a little bit, but um, but I think still Franks did a good job. Yeah, it was, um, he did fine. Except for the, you know, the scene, I, I talked about this when we reviewed it uh, while you were away, but the scene where he activates the, the manual steering and that joystick comes up in the middle of the bridge. <laughs> yeah, that, um, that doesn't really make any sense. It's, forget sense, man. It looked terrible. <laughs> it, it definitely looked awful. Um, but anyway, so uh, a couple other cool nuggets. Um, okay, so first off, they, want, they did want to put 
one particular rumor to bed, to rest, lay it to rest. There's apparently, and I'm not in this group, but there's apparently some people who had a feeling that the tension between Michael Burnham and Spock was romantic in nature. Well, I was and worried they were going to throw that in there, that Spock had feelings for her. So no, not even remotely. According, according to Alex and Heather, it never even occurred to them. Well, that's, and I hate to be that guy, but that's, a, that's especially good in considering the Kelvin universe with the Spock and her relationship is it basically means it's like, so he has a type. <laughs> like it's, yeah. that would be so, that would be such lazy writing that even, even your generic Star Trek fan would be like, all right, that's just like compared to, you know, Deanna Troy's varied relationships of multiple different species and different types of men and different types of intelligence. It's like, nope, Spock just goes for the exact same type, gorgeous women, intelligent women, strong women, but it would be lazy. Well, luckily they, they're not going that route. The, the falling out that the two had will have something to do with that battle of, you know, emotion and logic and science and, and all of that. So, well, um, good. And, you know, I think what people want, you know, a lot of fans enjoy is if there's romance in a show and it's done well, they like to see it be like grown organically. Mm-hmm. People meet, they fall in love, you know, Bellana Torres and Tom Paris. At first, they really didn't like each other. And they kind of grew on each other. They kind of developed respect and they had a relationship. And you could say the same thing about, you know, Jadzia and Worf. Yeah, she was always fascinated with Klingons and she always admired Klingons, but the relationship felt real. You got to see them grow together on, on screen versus, you know, the complaint I had about Spock and Uhura in 2009 was, bam, they just have a relationship. There's no growth. There's no development. It's just, you know what I mean? It's, I like to see people grow together. Yeah, it's one of the downsides of doing it in a movie format. You know, Trek, as I've said before, just kind of lends itself better to a serialized style. Yeah, I mean, Picard and Bosch, for example, they had so much chemistry together. Yeah. In one episode, you can legitimately believe you're like, they even act like a couple. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I, that's, a, that's a good example. Um, so so I'm glad they thing. put that rumor to rest because yeah. that would have been, again, not bad, just lazy. Agreed. Um, a couple other things that they, they wanted to point out is there's going to be two more episodes of short treks coming up this spring that deal directly with season two in different ways. And they're both going to be animated in different styles from uh, lower decks. It'll be completely different from the lower deck series. Mm, it's kind of a, uh, I'm getting a little bit of an animatrix vibe. You remember that? <laughs> I had the exact same thought. Oh, and you're watching Animatrix and you realize like there's 10 stories and the only one that anybody cares about is the one that has the war. (laughs) So for those who don't remember, uh, way back when the Matrix was still a thing, they released the Animatrix, which was a series of, or a collection of uh, several animated short films that were all done in a different style of animation. Yeah, because you had everything from literal standard TV cartoon style to anime to Aeon Flux style. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a bizarre attempt to maintain traction with the, with the series. It was interesting. And this doesn't sound like they're going that extreme. Uh, it sounds more of the, they just kind of want to be able to tell stories in a stylized way. And I really liked short tracks. I thought it was super cool. Um, and I, I don't 
if you watched the ready room, you'll know what I'm talking about. But if not, they did. I don't know if this would be a spoiler or not for a future episode, but one of the things in one of the short tracks is going to come back around in a pretty significant way later this season. And that's super cool that they're doing that because I thought they were interesting stories that they wouldn't normally be able to tell. And I'm looking forward to those connections. Hmm. Well, at least they're tying stuff together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing they touched on was they mentioned that the next episode, episode three, will focus uh, on the Klingons uh, heavily with Laurel. And the big focus there is a woman taking command of the Empire, essentially uh, uh, taking command of Kronos and, and everything. So um, kind of topical, uh, which they joked a little bit about. And I'm looking forward to seeing that because Mary Chifo, who who plays Laurel, is just fantastic. And I'm really excited to see where her story is going and i guess you know it's cool the only thing my reaction is a little a little bit more relaxed because you know when uh as takes over for galron or galron uh gorkon and undiscovered country the klingons were so like they didn't seem to care that she was female it seemed like it felt very natural felt like oh she's taking over the empire and there's like no resistance to her rule so it actually led me to believe that they had already had previous female rulers Uh, maybe laurel is the truly the first one she is the it's first possible. one, right? I mean, it's it's pre TOS, so you know that's definitely possible. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about the Klingon history prior to then, you know. So this is uncharted territory, but I I think it's a it's good because it is topical, you know, right now in our climate that there are still people who have problems with women in power, and I'm excited to see where the show takes that concept. Well, that's a good point. It's just because I'm such a huge fan of the expanse, which is mm. loaded with super powerful women. And it's just, they're all so cool. <laughs> so it's like that. I always end up comparing stuff to the expanse with how they do it. Um, ironically, the yeah. two from each show are very similar in appearance and combat like capability. That's kind of neat. I've been meaning to watch that show. I've heard very good things about it. Well, the books are good and the show is good. I'm not going to spoil anything, but you know the the lead actor on the show is great, but man, is he annoying? Um, <laughs> he's, he's, one those, he's one of those, and I love him. He, he's sharp looking. He's great looking. He's very similar to his book character, but he's always yelling. That's his thing. And his female counterpart is like his, uh, what's it called? Like a muse almost. Okay. She kind of keeps him balanced when you mm-hmm. realize that he's the leader but she's the leader behind the curtains and everybody knows it she keeps him sane and balanced and she's the strongest character actually on the show i don't want to spoil anything because if you haven't seen the expanse watch the expanse (laughs) fair enough fair enough um so yeah so that's it for the ready rooms it's first episode they'll they will be premiering episodes every friday um, I assume as long as the show is airing, I, I don't know if they'll continue it when the show's off the air. They certainly could. There's enough actors and, and crew and cast members to talk to, but, um, yeah, so they post that on the, the Facebook page for Star Trek discovery. Well, you bring up a good point about the Facebook problem is Facebook, the way they sort their timeline is such a nightmare that if you miss it and you're trying to find it, it can be a pain to find anything. Um, you know, every so often I'll see Ray post something about her Patreon and her timeline and I miss it and I want to go back and find it. 
Mm-hmm. And even though it's like sort of by most recent, it's like the top post is like three weeks old. I'm like, what the hell is going on? I just show me the posts chronologically, Facebook. <laughs> so it's, well, you're, you're right. That could be a problem if people miss it. Luckily, if you go straight to the page, the Star Trek Discovery Facebook page, they are chronological there. But, you know, I decided to watch it tonight and we were recording on Monday. So it came out on Friday. So there's been like, you know, three solid days in between. So there's other posts I've got to scroll through and stuff. And it's not like it's in a different format than anything else that they post because they usually post video content. More ah, often, I gotcha. You know, than not. Um, but I mean, that's, that's my only complaint about it. It seems very succinct. It seems like a much more kind of honest concept um, of what they're trying to do because I'm the kind of tricky that wants to see these interviews. I like the behind the scenes stuff. I like getting tidbits and I like talking about, you know, where things are headed uh, without it getting too spoilery. And I want to do it in as honest a way as we can. Obviously they're not going to have, you know, Alex Kurtzman's not going to come on and trash the show or say anything particularly negative, right? That'd be insane. But it just felt, it just felt more sincere. Well, that's, and that's, that's important. Fans react to that better than if they feel it's fake, just like after Trek, nobody watched it. I mean, that was the problem, right? I mean, I tried it, you know, you tried it and it, we didn't last long. Well, like I said, it's that whole woo factor, you know, look at the phasers. Woo. Look at the ship. Woo. I'm like, can we just, you remember, did you watch E3 this year? Uh, I did not. Well, when they were doing the announcements for like fallout 76, mm-hmm. there was somebody in the crowd just anytime, you know, this is fallout set in West Virginia and they're woo. And you can use guns. Woo. And, the whole time you're like, this is distracting. And that's what After Trek felt like. Well, yeah. I mean, I, it, I really soured when they tried to sell me, and this is not an exaggeration, a Starship model that was $8,000. <laughs> Look, I can I cannot pay my mortgage for six months and to buy a model. <laughs> that's basically the equivalent. So, so that's you know. Um, Let's talk about New Eden. Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and we will talk all about episode two. Hey there, I'm Batman. And I wanted to tell you about my friends at the screen heroes podcast. They deliver sweet justice in the form of discussing movies, television, and me. They love my movies. Every single one of them. Yes. Even that one. Sometimes they even have me out as a guest, which is thrilling. You can find them at twitch.tv slash heroes podcasts live on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Gotham time. If you can't tune in live, the new shows go up on places like Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Gotham Radio, Demoscura Live, and Blog Talk Radio. Now... Back to your regularly scheduled Batcast. All right, and we are back. Uh, Derek and I just spent some time talking news, new Ready Room show, but we really want to, you know, the focus of this episode today is New Eden, the second episode of Star Trek Season 2 of Discovery. Um, You know, what do you think, Derek, before we dive into the actual overall plot, you know, on a a 1 to 10, what do you think? I, uh, man, on a 1 to 10, that's that's a great question. Um... I'd probably give it like an eight or a nine. I really thought it was fantastic. Um, having only seen it the one time, 
I don't think I can give it like a 10 because I, I haven't watched it enough really in my opinion, but it was really good. What yeah, about you? I'm with you. It's, it's an eight, a very solid eight to me. It's good. It's good track. It felt like good track. Again, there's some stuff that, you know, it's that just track always does. Discovery just hams it up a little bit more is, you know, this signal, the radiation, this radiation, that, but that's fine. It's, but the, the plot, this is going to sound funny. Um, I actually got a pretty significant X-Files vibe when it first opened up. Oh, I like I, that. I think it's because they were doing a little bit more of, it was kind of like a mystery with science. And that's always kind of neat to me. And, you know, X-Files always did a bunch of that. Like, what's going on? But you always have with Scully, who would, you know, I got the, the vibe of Scully and Mulder because you have Scully, who's the scientist, like Burnham, always challenging Mulder. And, you know, you have Pike in this episode, who's showing a little bit of his family's religious background. He's not really religious, but he's educated. And he's more willing to take the certain things on whatever, divine action. And Burnham's like, no, that, there's got to be a scientific explanation. I'm like, that's, that was when I got the X-Files for you, uh, vibe. I like it. No, I think that that's really solid. Um, I did post a Twitter poll. I posted it kind of late, so I apologize to anybody who didn't get to see it. So kind of lower voting numbers than normal. But uh, 63% gave it an A rating, with 38% giving it a B, and nobody gave it lower. Yeah, I mean, this was not like a bad episode of Star Trek. So I'm, no. I, I think an eight is is an eight, an eight or up, an a, an a, like an A score is a good score. Yeah, um, I like I like your concept of the X Files vibes. I, I definitely see it now that you mention it. It didn't occur to me at the time. Well, and you know, we don't want to spoil too much. And I know every so often on this show we do a lot of spoiler discussion. So spoiler discussion. Um, they're continuing the search and the investigation on those red. Um, the red signals, the this, the radiation signals and such. And when they detect the second one, it's like, what they say? 51,000 light years away. Right. And in the beta quadrant and even Pike and people have to remember, yes, in next generation Voyager and company, they talk about the beta quadrant and how it's well explored. That's 140 years after original series parts. Sometimes. This we have is, to remember that a lot of these ships have a top speed. That's a lot lower than the enterprise D. Yeah, I mean, there's warp seven is a lot of them. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them can barely push warp eight. And so, yeah, when they mentioned 51,000 light years and they actually talk about, oh, well, we're going to have to use a spore drive and they're trying to explain it to Pike and even Pike's, you know, a little joke. He's like, we're going to skip across the galaxy on a on the mushroom road. He's like, OK, <laughs> um, I like that. And it's that, that was kind of neat. Well, he says, you know, he, he's going to have to just take it on faith, which Aside from that being just a very reasonable way to look at it, like I got to trust this crew that they know what the hell they're talking about. It also is just fitting for the episode. Yes, it is. And something else I really want to emphasize on this episode is it again reinforces the strength of Tilly mm -hmm. as, a, as a character and as an actress. And, you know, it, I don't know if, you know, it's starting to it's starting to, get to that point. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where there's so many characters on the bridge that you know they had to have Pike name them all off <laughs> last week. Yes, and I still can't name the whole bridge crew. It, so I'm I'm glad that I'm glad to see them getting other characters involved because next generation you had different characters every episode. Same thing with Voyager. Same thing with DS9. Um, because they had oh oh 
Owo is I think what people are calling her online. Oh, Awokasun. Awokasun, yeah. Um, Awosakun. Awosakun, yeah. Awosakun. Joanne is her first name, so we can call her Joanne. Um, but yes. <laughs> yeah, but it's so that, you know, they had to detect another signal, but when they arrive at the signal location, it's just, it's just an M-class planet. And they're all trying to figure out like how where the hell the signal come from, and you know when they're they're looking into the planet. And again, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, New Eden, you stop listening now. But essentially, they find humans, and they're not the original series human aliens that just look like humans, mm-hmm. or Next Generation when it's you know Angel One and they look like humans. It's literally humans from the planet Earth on a planet fifty one thousand light years away from Earth. It definitely had some TOS vibes, though. Like, you know, they'd go down to a, the gangster planet, and it's it's really just Earth. But, you know, it's their budget was so tight, it's just the gangster set from something. Um, it felt very reminiscent of that, which was kind of nostalgic in a way. But I like that they're actually humans. They're actually Earthlings. Yeah, they didn't try to... This wasn't some species that was cloned to look like humans or something. Like, nope, it's just humans. And, you know, they're... They're not, they're not quite living in a primitive society because they have homes and agriculture and such. They're kind of more similar to the, to the, oh, I can't even think of the aliens from freaking Insurrection. Oh, the, the Baku. The Baku and the Sona, yeah, because the yeah. Sona and the, are Baku. But it's, they're kind of like that. So they have some technology and they have some familiarity with stuff. And, you know, they even talk about how they lost power to the church and they've been trying to rebuild it. And, you know, I kind of, I, I get the the vibe when, you know, Pike, Burnham, and Joanne are investigating the planet and they find the church with all the combined religions. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of that TOS episode where uh, the Yangs and the and the Coombs. Oh, right. He's in the communists because they just had like leftover information mm-hmm. and they just tried to cobble it together the best they could. And this episode was a very religious-based episode, especially for mostly secular star trek outside of you know the bajorans um this was very 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 religious well i want to touch on that because a lot of people are talking about this being the first real conversation about science versus faith in star trek and i think people forget how much of deep space nine is that conversation i mean in the first episode cisco becomes the emissary for the religion <laughs> and their entire faith, you know, with the prophets. And that is a thread that goes until literally the end of the series. Um, and the conversation was that battle of the Bajorans believing it to be faith based for these prophets to be prophets, to be their gods. And then Cisco, who is the emissary coming from it, from a, from a more scientific standpoint, believing that these are, the wormhole aliens, right? And, you know, the concept of something that they talk about here in New Eden is that any abilities, powers, technologies advanced enough, you know, Pike says would be indiscernible from God. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even the religious aspect of DS9, you remember the Next Generation episode, Who Watches the Watchers with the Bintakens? Mm-hmm. And... You know, the, uh, the anthropologists are talking to Picard about, you know, they used to be religious and now they're not, but they're going to start viewing us as a religion. And Picard kind of goes off the rails. He's like, 
I'm not going to let them fall back into barbarity and depravity or whatever of, you know, inquisitions and religion like that. And that was Picard because Picard was an intellectual. He knows Earth's history of, you know, again, people sometimes view that stuff and they look at it from 1995 when they're watching the episode. But you have to look at it from somebody in 2367 or 2368. It's like most Catholics and Protestants today, they look back at the 30 years war in 1600s, Protestants versus Catholics were, you know, 12 million are killed. And most religious people today agree that that was a bad idea. (laughs) I hope so. They're educated enough to go, that was wrong. The Inquisition was wrong, whatever. That's Picard, who's looking back at thousands of years of human history going, you know, religions on earth caused a lot of wars and he didn't want the Matakans to go through that. And you kind of get that a little bit with Burnham in this episode where she's like, okay, they got to be here and there's got to be a logical explanation. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And this really gets to show who Pike is as a captain and as a human being. Um, you know, this episode focuses a lot on general order number one, which uh, we saw, you know, becomes it evolves into the prime directive yep absolutely you know yeah all all of our captains have broken the prime directive from time to time um you could even argue that pike breaks it at the end of this episode but the fact that it is so important to him and that at the same time he's willing to discuss the possibility of this being a faith-based thing but at the same time recognizing what what that could really mean right like saying that an advanced enough species would be indiscernible from god for him means that this could be a godlike creature i mean look at look at q for a moment what yeah. what what is something that the the stereotypical western god can do that q can't Mm. play the trumpet <laughs> <laughs> and have a mariachi band <laughs> i mean that, like that that's the thing right like the idea of q is a being so evolved so advanced so powerful that at the end of the day he could be our god oh you right? take a you take a, a species like q and you drop them and uh you know, 1095 earth when they're talking about the first crusade they're going to think it is God. And if he can just appear and disappear and do this, do that, do this, do that, they're going to think legitimately God has returned. Go, go farther back. I mean, you could go back to old Testament stuff, you know, Moses on the mountain and everything. I mean, if Q came down and transformed into some other worldly creature and spoke, you know, it, in a powerful, you know, ear shattering voice and could make things, you know, create the plagues and things of that nature. I mean, who would question those abilities? He's saying it was Q that part of the red Z. I mean, I'm (laughs) saying that it's the same powers that he has. No, exactly. That's a good point. And that's kind of what this episode revolves around. And, you know, again, this is another episode like last week where the plot advanced a lot, but not a lot happens. Yes. Cause you know, they meet a few of the people on the planet and they meet Jacob who is a descendant from the, the families that first arrived. And, you know, again, spoiler alert, but basically these people were 
transported to this planet somehow, and you don't know how. Um, during, like during World War III, they were fighting a battle at a church, uh, defending a church of some kind. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the lore of World War III and Earth, is it was basically um, the most updated canon. It was kind of a spillover from the eugenics wars, and 600 million people died, and everything fell apart, basically. So these people were fighting in a war and got transported somehow. It's it's super fascinating because, you know, yes, okay, they were t- transported in a church, but these were people from all walks of life, various religions, and you were mentioning how they kind of they kind of cobbled it all together, but I'm not sure that that has the right connotation to it. It feels, and this episode feels more artistically sewn together. Oh, absolutely, because they they put everything together on a for a purpose. It, you know the way they kind of. Even the language that the, um, the col- I don't know what to call them, the colonists, the people on the planet, even the language they use during their sermons, it's language that's used from all the different religions and they're kind of using the best parts of everything. Right. And I, I thought that that was really interesting, especially the way they, they showcased, you know, like when, when Pike's looking at what I'm assuming is some type of Bible scripture book, right? And you can see that it's literally patched together. You look at, the stained glass windows. And, you know, as Burnham pointed out, they have symbols from various earth religions. It's kind of, it's a cool thing for me to see because, so my background is, uh, is Jewish. My family is Jewish, but I've, I've been an atheist most of my life. And the idea of all of these religions living in harmony, working together to better everyone is pretty amazing to me. That's that's a really appealing concept. Oh yeah, because I was raised Catholic. Uh, <laughs> been primarily and similar to you, just more of an, an atheist in my adult in my adult life. But yeah, this this would be the best peaceful teachings of all the religions are what the the people on the planet appear to be living with. And even and even when you know Jacob is trying to explain to the elder. Like, look, there's something about these people. Look at this, look at this, look at this. The elder doesn't respond to Jacob with like anger, which happened, you know, on a lot of those TNG episodes when the Supreme Ruler is talking to the young, wise, wild scientist and berating the scientist and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. The elder doesn't do that. The elder just says, Jacob, your place is here and this is our life and this is our home. But she's very kind. She's very calm. She's very relaxed. She's not over the top. You and your false science have doomed us. The thing is, you, know, you have to think about what these people have gone through. They were literally teleported in the middle of a war zone to a peaceful planet and given, I mean, what to anybody should appear to be a second chance at a better life to avoid the, the violence and mistakes of their generation and those before them. So the idea of going back it's probably not particularly appealing to these people now. It's been a hundred years. It's their home. Or, or I mean, hundred years, uh, three hundred years. Yeah, I mean, it's their home. People don't want to leave, and you know, at the sure. same time, they're on the planet. You've got the radiation issue with the with the one of the rings because the planet's kind of got like a cool trinary ring system, and one of the rings naturally, of course, you know, in, in one hour there's going to be a radiation storm that's going to destroy the planet. Of course, right. Um, and that's when Saru hypothesizes. He's like, "Did we? Did the signal bring us like in, in 
what he's saying uh, they were like the signal inspired us to come here to save this planet we're not going to let a planet be destroyed on our watch right because um, you know even though on the bridge you've got people from different planets that you know clearly would not have the the same religion whether they're religious or not they all still believe that they should do the best they can in any opportunity that, in any situation that they're put into and whether or not the red dots or this angelic being shape form that Burnham saw is intelligent, an alien, a God or not, it's, it doesn't matter because they have an opportunity to save people. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And you know, the, uh, and on the ship, you know, they, they find a way to, to kind of intercede on behalf of the planet to save it. And they use the dark matter asteroid because of the, uh, the intense gravity after Tilly, you know, takes off a one centimeter chunk and hurts herself because it explodes um, <laughs> and almost kills her, by the way. And, and then she starts seeing, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But so Discovery is able to save the day, of course, and beam the people up after Pike again gets injured which is going to be a running gag this season. I'm assuming is something that's going to happen to him every episode, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, it did, it was fun to see the away party consist of two very important bridge officers. I mean, that's not true. All three of them are bridge officers, but two of them being leads on the show, right? You've got the captain, you've got Burnham who is the lead, right? And then um, you have Osakun, who's another bridge officer. Uh, you know, she, um, and all three of them go down. It's the Kirk's, it's the Kirk Spock and bones thing all over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, so much stuff happens. And the, the, the one complaint I had for Tilly is, you know, when Tilly's hypothesizing how to solve the problem, she, you know, she's like, Oh, I wish Michael was here. And I'm like, I wish, cause they've done that a few times. And I'm like, no, just Tilly, you're great at what you do. Just let yourself be yourself. And the reason I say that is you remember, those TNG episodes when, you know, they run into those uh, like filaments and crushers on the bridge and she's like in charge. Yeah. And people are like questioning her and then she's, her confidence starts building up. She's like, wait, the captain's not here. Riker's not here. I'm going to solve it. And she starts figuring out people's strengths. And I like that. I like when, and they kind of do that where, you know, she's talking to her friend and her friend's kind of encouraging her because, you know, Tilly likes the needs, the encouragement, but man, I wish, you know, I wish you would have said, oh, you know, Burnham's not here, but you know what? I'm going to figure this out anyways. And I just, cause I don't want, I want the characters to be good on their own. If that makes sense. Well, and I think she will. I think it's a matter of time as, as she, we continue to know her, she gains more and more confidence as time goes on. Right. Like, you know, in the first episode, she's joking about being drunk with power because why? Well, she's in the command program now. She's, yep. She in this episode, she's questioning or flat out ignoring Saru's orders, and you know she's she's getting hurt in the process, but she's also saving the day in the process, and it's showing that she is making strides. She's becoming a better officer. She's becoming a more confident human being, and the fact that she's still in her head, her reflex is to fall back on somebody. While we may not want her to do that, I do think it's pretty normal. It's pretty human when you're a person who had self-esteem issues or had low confidence issues. And I think soon ish that won't be a roadblock for her anymore. I hope not. Cause especially everything she went through in season one. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, hell, she pretended to be, you know, Kelly. <laughs> so it's like, it's one of those things I hope they just continue to let, like we've seen so much growth in the Saru. As just as like an officer, as a captain. And we're starting to see some with Tilly, but we, we're still seeing a lot of those confidence things, which I know people are trying to prescribe to a whole bunch of variety of reasons. It's just, she's such a good character. I hope that the showrunners realize the talent they have in that actress and let it blossom. Yeah. Mary Wiseman's great. There's, there's no question in my mind about that. Um, I, I just think they're really using her to show what, what would somebody like you or me be like on that ship, you know, and she's, she's absolutely brilliant, but at the same time, she's, she's young. She's the youngest person ever accepted into the command program at that particular point in Starfleet's history. Yeah. Which I have very, very little information on, on other people who've been accepted into that at a young age. So I mean, it makes sense. She was pretty integral in helping end the war. So, I mean, if anybody deserves an early entry, it's her. Either way though. I mean, when you're the youngest to get to do something, you know, you usually fall into one of two categories. You're either overconfident and cocky, which can lead to problems, or you're self-conscious and have, you know, feelings of imposter syndrome or something like that. And I think that that one can show, that's a little less tropey to show than the over cocky person who has to get knocked down a peg. Well, yeah, because the over cocky thing is always played out quite a bit on most on non Star Trek shows. It's all over the place. Exactly. So and I mean, yeah. it's, it's been on Star Trek. I mean, Tom Paris was the overly cocky flyboy, right? Yeah, I mean, even in episode one this see this year, you had Connolly, just a jerk of a scientist, oh, of the science officer who was just overly brash and arrogant about everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I mean, you know, we get to see. I mean. Tilly comes onto the bridge in the medical gown, whatever you'd want to call that regard, like doesn't really worry about the appearance or worry about barging in or anything like that because she thinks she has the answer to something that's incredibly important. And it caught some of the bridge crew members off guard, but what does Saru do? He listens to her. He stops, he hears what she says and he listens to it. And that's also what makes him, a good commander. No, I completely agree with that. And I like how she just immediately runs to the bridge. It's, Hey, I think I can solve this. I think I know a solution. I'm going to the bridge. She didn't run to get a uniform on or something like that. Mm-hmm. She said, screw it. This is important for the mission, important for the crew. And I can save the people of the planet and save our, save the people on, save our crew that are on the ground. So again, yeah. it just, re- it just reinforces that she's probably still my favorite overall character on the show. Cause even the whole thing with, with the, with the asteroid is she's trying to use it to find a way to, to help Stamets because she can see the discomfort on Stamets when he, when he's talking about entering um, the mycelial spore system. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do if I see Hugh again. Mm-hmm. It's like, she's reacting to the pain of others to try to help solve it. I mean, that's not only is that integral Starfleet, that's a, that's a very human thing to want to do to take care of your friends and colleagues. Absolutely. Yeah. I still have a very hard time picking a favorite, character i tend to gravitate towards the non-humans in star trek so like saru for example um but there's just everybody is so strong and they don't really focus on too many of them all at once it's hard to pick for me yeah i think that's the thing the main reason i'm still i'm still with tilly is 
she's just the one that's so relatable that I can relate to the easiest. Yeah. And maybe it's because she just feels so human and, you know, it's Burnham's a brilliant, but the moment, the thing is Burnham kind of reminds me of next generation where she's almost so good at everything. And that's the joke about next generation. You and I made that joke mm-hmm. um, is, but Tilly's kind of got like human characteristics, human flaws. And I get, cause I get it. Cause Burnham was raised as a Vulcan or raised, excuse me, raised on Vulcan. Um, but I don't know. And we'll see. And it's, I always dig those very real, those characters that feel like if I encountered them in Starfleet, that I would, that I wouldn't feel natural being around. Sure. Absolutely. So talking about Tilly does lead us to a new character that we are introduced to named May. Yes. Um, <laughs> May. <laughs> So, uh, again, huge spoiler alert, because the only way we can talk about this character is if we admit that there's spoilers. No, nah, I, mean, I feel like at this point, yeah, it's, it's all, everything's been spoiled. So. Everything's been spoiled, yeah. I mean, she's, she's seeing one of her friends from middle school, high school, and the friend turns out she does some research. She thinks the friend's on board, but the friend died like 10 years in the past. And she's seeing a full life-size image of this girl in a Discovery uniform who's been giving Tilly advice like during the episode and giving her feedback and giving her support. No, I, I just, I know that there's some discussion that it's a, a an image from the mycelial spore network. Cause that spore landed on her like in an episode last year. Mm. And so maybe it, it's drawing on one of her memories, but who knows? It could be related to this whole angel thing that we've been seeing. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's also, you know, the fact that she was hit, with that explosion so or whatever that was from the asteroid that had dark matter involved. Um, you know, we, as a species, we know very little about dark matter, so sci-fi can play around with that really quite a bit. Um, the way May was introduced as a character just really caught me off guard because we didn't get a name, we didn't get an introduction. She's just there talking to Tilly, like they've been talking together for years, and we're just rolling with it. And... I was really confused by that at first. I was like, well, this is an interesting way to introduce a new character. <laughs> well, especially because she's, they meet or she meets her in sick bay and everybody's mm-hmm. wearing the white medical uniform except for May. Right. She's the only one in the blue disco uniform and she's just talking to Tilly while Tilly's doing her thing. And you know, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Cause I have my own theory. Well, not my, that's a, there's a pretty common theory about the red angel thing. Um, the whole connection to the Iconians or the preservers or something. Oh, yes. I would love um, to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I know people want them to introduce a new species, but I actually would prefer if they don't introduce new species because Star Trek's got enough of these magical species. They don't need to keep creating new ones. Well, I think if you're going to have a season-long arc that, ha- that connects the whole galaxy and is cl- clearly showing like a scavenger hunt for the crew here, right? Like the idea that we're supposed to come out of this episode with is that they were supposed to get that asteroid that they were yeah. supposed to get that asteroid and take it to that planet at that particular point in time to save those people. Yeah, exactly. You know, to do all of that and to, to create a creature that looks like that form, that angelic form that we saw and have it not be the Iconians or not be something that we have some familiarity with would be surprising. Now, if they create something new, they create something new. But I think, the Iconian idea is super interesting. 
Well, and especially with how big the Iconians have been in Star Trek Online lately, and even the artwork of the Iconians, there's a lot, and again, it could just be the ICs with the ICs, but there's a lot of similarity between them. I think, additionally, they're working on the Picard show, and we know that he's not captain anymore. That phase of his life is over. Jonathan Frakes confirmed that. Most of us kind of guessed it that this would be a non-captain Jean-Luc Picard. Mm -hmm. And Jean-Luc has always had a fascination with, um, with artifacts, right? And he, he always had a fascination with the Iconians. Yeah. I mean, they even encountered one of the Iconian computer systems that destroyed the Yamato. So he, what if there's a connection here? There, there very well might be. And, you know, the, the, the true canon information we have in the Iconians is thankfully so minimal. Yeah, we've got some stuff in Star Trek Online and such. But, you know, everybody was talking about, you know, they were, they were wiped out by a whole bunch of species. Maybe they were evil. And then somebody, somebody on the show is like, well, you don't know they were evil. Their, the history about them was written by the people who destroyed them. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, while Star Trek Online has been able to expand on the lore, at the end of the day, I hate to say it, that game is not canon. So we really only have very few pieces of canon information about the Iconians. Yeah, there's Um, a bunch of beta canon, but little alpha canon. And you mentioned the Preservers, who, you know, they have a bunch of stuff in beta canon because of the novels, and they're super interesting. Um you know, they could go that route, especially because they're, those, the preservers are also responsible for the mirror universe. Well, and you know, there's a history of the preservers because in the original series, when they saved some, um, like, I think it was like three of those native American tribes. So there's, there's established lore of them doing that. Maybe there was something special about these people, or maybe it was because the group was very diverse and very diverse culturally that they were saved. The, the Iconian thing would be kind of neat because it's a fun Easter egg, but it's still within the realm of Star Trek. Because the risk you run if you create yet another new meta species, you know, the, the, the Particularians or something, it's, then everybody runs into the question, like, why have we never heard of them before? Right. You know, if you use the Iconians, you know, 100, 200 years down the road, when somebody's looking through these logs, like, oh, we understand Star Trek Discovery thought they met an Iconian, but it was never confirmed. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think I think it'd be a missed opportunity to not tie into some Star Trek lore because it seems that that's what they're doing. It seems like they're doing this stuff on purpose. And the people involved in the show know Star Trek. You know, it's one thing to not like their take on it, but claiming these people don't know the franchise is just disingenuous. And so I'd be surprised if this doesn't connect to something we already know. I am completely on board with that. And it's maybe it's the Iconians, maybe it's the preservers. Maybe it's, I hope it's not something where it's, they pull an interstellar where it's future humans testing current humans or something. I'm like, no, let's not, <laughs> let's not do that. I love interstellar, but even I thought that was kind of lazy. Um, no, I don't see that happening here because it, that would violate the temporal prime directive. And by the way, would show echoes of the temporal cold war from enterprise, which I don't think anybody really wants to do. Yeah. Let's not revisit that one. <laughs> so <laughs> It's okay to admit certain stories don't work. 
And not to go off on too much of a tangent here, but I have so many gripes about Interstellar, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, buddy. <laughs> um, but I still, I still enjoy it. But yeah, I got, I got plenty of gripes too. But so it's a pretty cool. movie. It's a very pretty movie. But that, that's the weird thing about New Eden is, like we just said again, like a lot of stuff happens to advance the plot, but not a lot of individual stuff happens. You know, they save the planet, they meet some people. Pike wildly violates General Order One by leaving behind a little battery pack. But essentially all the battery pack does is give him power for the church, which used to have power anyways. Well, and that's the thing. He knows that Jacob knows their old technology. His, his family line has been responsible for that technology. And this is kind of the parting gift of all their, their the fruits of their labor of doing that for generations. Yeah. You it's know, just... for, for the 200 years or so, and I know I accidentally said 300 before, but the 200 years or so that they were there, um, you know, this is the thanks is to, to make that power work to show that there's earth is earth got by, but maybe that doesn't mean they need to leave their home. Yeah. That's a very good point. They can, they can build a new home. And again, that's the one problem with a prequel is, you know, now people are going to ask like, what do they like 200 years later? <laughs> what do they like a hundred years later? Did this planet join the, well, 51,000 light years would be too far to join the Federation, but what ended up happening to the people? That's just Trek fans. We're curious about everything. We want to, you know, CBS, you have to realize that by now. You put anything on a show, we're going to want to, we're going to ask questions about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's now, one, thousands one, of Wikipedia pages on starships alone. <laughs> now, one thing we didn't touch on yet is the uh, donut in space. Do we want to touch on it? I mean, I think a little bit for for two main reasons. <laughs> one. First off, first and foremost, it shows us more about Detmer, who, you know, other than the injury that she has in the beginning of the series, we don't get to know much about her. You know, we know that she's front and center. She's the Helms officer um, on board the Discovery, so she's got to be pretty good. But that's all we really know. And this episode lets us learn that she's not just a pilot. She's a fantastic pilot. She is one of the best pilots, right? Which it may be a little tropey for Trek. Cause like you mentioned, TNG is a little like that, you know, Tom Paris on Voyager is the, the greatest pilot of all time. And, you know, but in this case, we get to learn a little bit more about Detmer. She's had her pilot's license since she was 12. Yeah. And, you know, she's, <laughs> you know, she's willing to try some crazy stuff. Well, I guess if you think about it, we've had Tom Paris and Detmer, but, you know, in Next Generation, they kind of just threw anybody in a red shirt at the helm's control. And, you know, Wesley Crusher, yeah, he served at the helm, but I think everybody knows Wesley more as a science background. Um, That's true. He, he was smart. And, yeah, you had Sulu and Chekhov that on the original series kind of swapped roles now and then, mm-hmm. just depending on who was doing what. Detmer is really the second one we've had that I would consider a true... I mean, you had on Enterprise, but... I think Detmer takes a little bit more precedence and I at least like that again, it's Star Trek and they're trying to keep some reality of what physics is, which I always appreciate because it's so easy just to pretend that physics doesn't matter when it's probably the one, one of the universal constants of the, of the galaxy. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, that's where the second part kind of comes into this is that, I mean, I'm not a physicist in any respect, so I don't really know. It felt a little silly when they actually did the donut. 
Well, this is going to sound weird. When they said they were going to be doing a donut, I thought they were literally going to like spin in a circle. I know, me too. <laughs> I was like, because when, whenever I've done a donut driving, like on accident, my car spins. And I maybe it was just because the camera angle, but it didn't look like I thought they were going to spin to build up centrifugal force to throw the asteroid. Because they said early on, you know, they couldn't really, when they caught the asteroid, that it, transporters and the, the uh, tractor beam wasn't going to work on it. So that's what I thought they were going to do, build up enough centrifugal force to literally throw the asteroid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I- I'm with you. Um, and that, that's not really what it looked like. It looked a little slow even. Um, I think in my head, because the production value is so high on the show, I guess I expected something a little more sophisticated from an, a visual FX standpoint. You remember uh, A New Hope when the, they're being, the, the Millennium Falcon is being chased? He's like, oh, watch this. And he just does no movement at all. And yeah. <laughs> they even make fun of it on Family Guy. And the, the Imperials are like, where'd you go? I don't know. It, it kind of felt like that. Basically the left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it kind of felt like that a little bit. They're, they're talking up this big thing and a culvert starburst maneuver this was not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, breaking, I'm breaking out that reference. I mean, yeah, that's exactly my thought on that. So it's not, it has nothing to do with the Detmer character. It has more to do with just the visual effects of that, that shot, that sequence. Well, and you know, we got a little bit more dialogue from Miriam finally. You know, she gave a little bit of feedback to Saru and company. So that was kind of cool to have her more engaged. But that's the problem with when, when you have a cast this large with this many people and you're trying to exemplify modern television it's hard to give everybody equal distance, like equal, equal feet or equal opportunity on a, on a show to show what they can do. Yeah. And, and especially if you only have 12 to 14 episodes a season, you can't highlight everybody. And that's one of the big complaints about game of Thrones is, you know, this character's content was cut as the seasons went on. And they're like, well, we have so much going on. We can't film everybody. Mm-hmm. And you know, Detmer's cool looking and Miriam is cool looking and Saru's neat. And you got all these secondary characters that are, the fans love because that's that seems to be what fans do. We love those secondary characters. We want to know more about. And I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Do you mean Arium? Arium, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. I thought I thought maybe I was missing somebody. So I just want to. No, I was just Miriam. I don't know why. Arium. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We she was more involved, which is neat, and we didn't see the red shirt engineer from last episode. It's true. We didn't. Um, maybe she went back to the Enterprise. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's definitely possible. Um, and you know, like, like I said earlier, I tend to gravitate towards the non-human. So I want to see more of Arium because she seems cool. Like she, she isn't an, an Android, but is she, you know, where did she come from? Is she from a planet of, of living mechanical beings, you know, that, that aren't, you know, like us is, she, was she built by another Federation planet? Like what, what's her background? I really want to know. Yeah, because they're going to, it's again, it's one of those things they're going to have to be careful when, you know, if they start using the word android and everybody's like, well, the Zoom type androids were the first positronic androids. Well, maybe but, she's not positronic. Yeah, maybe she's something else. Like you said, right. I'm hopeful maybe she's just some sort of cyborg enhanced species, which would be a good contrary to the Borg, where the Borg want to consume everybody. Maybe this species just uses it to enhance, you know, maybe they're. Maybe they have a low gravity, weak atmosphere environment or something. So they use cybernetics to enhance themselves. Maybe. 
you got that you had Melora Paslar on DS9, that the girl that came from the low gravity planet where they oh, could fly. Right. Yeah. But they worked on a on a system to enhance it so she could walk and work on a Starfleet vessel. Mm-hmm. So I mean maybe it's maybe something like that. They just enhance themselves a little bit. Very possible. Or she's just a full robot species and they're pretty neat looking. <laughs> So let's see. Um, not a whole lot else, you know. Not much from Stamets. He used the spore drive again, which he had, was kind of a touching scene because he was really concerned he was going to see Culver in in the spore network because that's where he saw him last. Um, which was a pretty emotional scene, and obviously we we don't get to see Culver in this particular episode. Um, still holding out hope that we'll get to see more of him. Yeah, somebody mentioned his name was even off the credits this time. It was, it was. Um, yeah, that's always a frustration for me is, is opening credits because if you're not going to just always show the exact same people, it's kind of a spoiler for the episode you're about to watch. Uh, absolutely. You know, so when I saw Culver's name in the credits of the first episode of, La- of, of Brother, I was like, oh, okay, so he's still a C- series regular. Well, then this week his name's not in the credits. I'm like, okay so i guess that just means he's his contract has his name in the opening credits when he's in an episode but that means now we'll know if he's going to be in one if his name shows up in the credits yeah which or vice versa yeah it makes it difficult to do some surprises these days but it's just like just like with the marvel movies they're like oh is 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 robert downey jr done playing iron man and then the disney cfo people announce that he signs a five movie contract extension. You're like, well, apparently he's not. So he's not actually dead. And that's the problem with, with modern, modern contracting is that it's so hard to keep secrets. It is, it is. But I mean, we don't know the contracts of these cast members, you know? So if you just kept the names off the opening credits, then we'd have no way of knowing if they're going to show up or not. That's right. You know, that's, that's my gripe. You know, it's, and, and Star Trek has always done this, where, where you know the opening credits like, and special guest star, you know, Whoopi Goldberg. Like, well, I guess Guinan's in this one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's no mystery here, right? And uh, you know, sometimes that can be distracting. You know. Um, there's there's been movies where there's a, you know the opening credits is some actor I had no clue was in the film, and now I'm like, well, where is he? I'm going to keep looking for him or whatever. Um, in this case, you know, when you have a character who dies in such a intense and shocking way. And then there's all these rumors that, you know, he's in this season and the first time you see him, he is, but it's a recording. So he's it's from before he died, you know, and then he's not in the second episode. You start to kind of question what the plan is. And now I'm going to be looking for it. I can't help it. If I see his name in the credits, like, I'm going to be looking for it. Yeah. And I know, I know we're running long here, but the last thing I want to mention is a comment that Stamets and Tilly were, were talking about how they, uh, mycelium network is basically could be like a rebirth because mm-hmm. nothing in the universe ever dies. That's, I, that's fascinating and I like it, but I hope they don't find some cheesy way of killing characters off and just bringing them back from the network or bringing them back from the mycelium network. Cause I think character deaths if done on a story can be very dramatic and done and have important impacts. And it's like, um, Deanna, Tasha Yar, you know, yeah, she was leaving and people knew she was leaving the show, but nobody knew they were going to kill her. Mm-hmm. Especially from a tar monster, but whatever. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think that if they're going to use that mechanic, 
to bring back Culver. They have to do it in a way where it's a one-time deal. Or they have to do, you know, Babylon 5 had this thing where, yeah, I'm, re- I'm referencing Babylon 5. I'm, I'm going ultra nerd mode today. <laughs> um, there was an episode of Babylon 5 that there was an alien healing machine that was found and you hook two people up to it. But the way it heals is it drains my life and gives it to you, basically. Because what they found out was the machine was a death penalty machine. So it was used to take life from criminals to give life to the good people. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's something that Stamets figures out what the network is. Hey, I found a way to bring back Colbert, but you know, that old adage of only life can pay for life. So I would have to die for Colbert to come back. So I, I had a similar idea. I have not seen Babylon five. I've always wanted to, but the flash TV show has a s- similar concept to the Spore network, which is the speed force. And, um, there's a whole arc in the show about how the speed force is, is kind of like a living thing and there's a balance to it. And they, they do some stuff to kind of ch- trick the speed force and it creates a problem. There's an imbalance and somebody has to fill a void in the speed force. And, you know, one character has to sacrifice themselves for another character to be trapped in there. Hmm. So yeah, that could be could be pretty similar to what they're going to do with this, and maybe that's maybe that's why the Spore Drive ends up being a buried Federation secret. I mean, it's definitely possible. Um, you know, having Stamets sacrifice himself for Culber because he can't live without him, I think, is a very touching thing. Um, at the same time, I'm sure Culber would be very upset by that. Well, and it also know? it also gives a good reason why the Federation would hide the technology because you would have lunatics out there that, you know, lose a husband or a wife or a child and get so desperate that they just, they kidnap somebody of force and whatever. They somehow force them to trade spots or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you would have that. And it, so, I mean, it's, we'll, we'll, we'll see. They're, they're setting something up for that's for sure. Yeah. No question. No all question right, well, at all. I think we, we beat on new Eden pretty good. A good episode. I think better than the first one. Um, <laughs> So I'm glad, I'm glad to see some of our fan favorite characters starting to get starting to get a lot of the limelight, and obviously everybody loves Pike still. Oh yeah, he's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Um, next week we have the episode. Episode three is called Point of Light. Point of Light. Point of Light. Hmm. Yeah, this season's episode titles are less TOS like. They're much shorter. They're more succinct. Brother, New Eden, Point of Light. Um, I know the next two, but I'm not gonna. I'll save those for future weeks. <laughs> yeah, we got we got plenty more Trek to talk about. Um, I have to admit that this before we end, um, I like this whole Red Angel thing they're doing because even though I'm not religious, I appreciate mysticism and lore and otherworldly stuff in Star Trek because it's something that forces the cast and crew to respond to. Because you know my big complaint about. 2009 movies and some modern movies these days or 2009 Trek is everything is a gigantic blue monster space beam mm-hmm. or gigantic. Let's build a dreadnought with 85 torpedoes on it and have no other plot. And so I like stories that have impact on the cast and crew. So I'm, I'm enjoying this so far. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you. Anything that, that deals with the classic pillars of Star Trek, 
you know, ethics, morals, philosophy, what it, the human experience, right? That's the whole point. What does it mean to be human? And ignoring religion and faith is ignoring most of our history. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing I loved, loved, loved about Burnham in this episode was her sticking to her science background. Mm-hmm. You know, Pike is saying this out of the other. And she's like, no, there has to be some sort of logical explanation. And she's even challenging the people on the planet. I'm like, that's, that's what a scientist would do. It is. They don't just take something at face value. They're like, all right, I need more information. All and right, I well. think that's what we're going to continue to get. It's just more detail as the season goes on. I agree, buddy. <laughs> I think this is a good ending point. If you want to talk Star Trek New Eden, you can find us on <laughs> Shirts Pod at, on Twitter. So, at, or at Heroes Podcast Network on Twitter. Also, on, you can just search that on Facebook. Um, but Derek, buddy, if people want to find you individually, how can they do that? I am the Star Trek dude on Twitter and Facebook. Please come talk to me about Trek, video games, movies. I also co-host Screen Heroes, which is our flagship movie TV podcast here on the Heroes Podcast Network. So come come talk with me. And you can find me at, on Twitter at the underscore bittersteel. And some other good news I've noticed is if you just go to Google and just type in Red Shirts and Runabouts or Heroes Podcast Network, it's, you're going to find our information. Woo. And I know some people like to do that. It's easy to remember. Um, so d- t- check us out. You know, we've got, this is episode 58. So we've got plenty of Star Trek content. Um, but otherwise, I think we're looking forward to uh, week number three. Yes. Uh, one other thing I just want to throw out there, I'll probably mention a few more times, is if you are in the Kansas City area, for Planet Comic Con, which is the last weekend of March, we will be doing a live episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts at the convention. We will be doing it on Saturday, and we will be building the ultimate Star Trek crew with the audience. Sounds excellent. So yeah, so that'll be it for us then, guys. Hopefully you can join us for that. If not, you can catch us next week when we review episode three. See you then. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network and is executive produced by me, Derek Mayer. Our music is by Flying Killer Robots. Please consider following us on social media at Red Shirts Pod on Twitter or at Heroes Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, or Patreon. You can also go to HeroesPodcast.com to find all of the episodes for Red Shirts and Runabouts as well as the other shows on the Heroes Podcast Network. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, or anywhere that you want to drop our RSS feed. If you drop us a review on iTunes, we'll be sure to give you a shout-out on a future episode. Thanks for tuning in. Live long and prosper. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.